Well, this morning, our scripture text comes from Romans chapter 14. It's a little bit longer of a reading this morning. And in fact, if you're following along at home and you have a Bible, um, I didn't print it all in our worship folder, but I'm going to read all of Romans 14 and also the first six verses of chapter 15, because it all sort of goes together. So uh, hear God's word to us this morning. This is Romans 14 through 15, verse 6. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak, <clears throat> while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while, he, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any, any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know that I am persuaded in Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And what you eat, do not just, <clears throat> by what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God, and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink, or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. 
for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Psychic fragility is how I would describe the mood out there these days. Psychic fragility. Things are tense. There's a lot of negative emotion that's going around. We are all weary and emotionally depleted. Everyone seems to be a little bit touchy and sensitive. We want this to be over. We want to be done with this virus. We want to get back to normal. But unfortunately, more than ever, we need the very opposite of psychic fragility. We need emotional fortitude. We need steadfastness. We need calm and we need patience. We need kindness and continual humility. One thing that I am quickly learning about living in a post-COVID-19 world is that it's much easier to close something down than it is to open something up. Discontinuing in-person worship was a very difficult decision. Bringing a kind of a lot of our care and pastoral care and community was a lot of work. But as we look towards reopening in, in, in the future, it's even more complicated. It's not simply a matter of opening the doors and telling everybody to come back. Last week, we sent out a survey um, to the congregation to get your input and your sense of what reentry or reopening um, would, would look like from your perspective or what you feel comfortable with coming back out. And as you can imagine, there was a great deal of diversity within our body about how to respond, how to reopen. There were some people in the body who felt very strongly that we should never have closed. And let me just be really clear here. I, I like what one pastor said. He said, you know, we've not closed the church. We've closed the buildings. City Reformed Church is not closed. We've continued to be open, but we have closed the building, right? So let's just be careful about that. But many of you feel very strongly that we should have never discontinued in-person worship. Some of you feel very strongly and have communicated that you will not return to worship until there's a vaccine that's available. You don't feel comfortable coming back. 
I think I would characterize maybe the majority, it's sort of like a bell curve. Most people in the congregation want to get back to worship as soon as they can, but with the proper social distancing, with the proper restrictions in place in order to continue it safe. But again, there's varying levels of, of comfort um, in terms of, or conviction about how strict social distancing should be. There's a lot of potential conflict out there. There's a lot of potential conflict out there for our church as we think about reopening, and it's a very, um, it's a tricky and, and complicated conversation. And I think it's really important right now at the very beginning for us to try to, try to have the right framework, have the right framework for how we approach this. The Apostle Paul is very concerned throughout all his letters with the unity of the church. And that unity of the church is fundamental witness to the gospel. I mean, Paul's great doctrine of the doctrine of justification by faith means a sense that we've been, we've been accepted by God. Because of Jesus Christ, we've been accepted by God. The question is, can we accept one another? We have peace with God. Can we live in peace with one another? The church is called to be a place where different races and cultures and people of different political persuasions can live together in peace. Unity of the life of the church is proof and in a sense a demonstration of the truth of the gospel. And so I think it's really important for us just to reflect and, and to, to, to talk very openly about what does it mean for us to get along? What does it mean for us to have mutual respect for one another? Um, there is a very thriving industry of, of, of literature and consultants around conflict resolution and management. And there's a lot of great common grace wisdom, I think, that is a part of that. But I think what Paul gives us here is something uniquely gospel-centered, a very theological understanding um, of what it means for us to, to overcome our differences, to, to uh, kind of work out those tensions, which comes from understanding who God is, right? So there's, there's two, two things that emerge in this, this uh, passage that I think are helpful to reflect on. One is, is God is the Lord, and the other one is God is Savior. So this text was quite long. Um, there's a lot of context to understand what's going on here. But look, look with me at verse 1 in chapter 14. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, what's the context here? What is, who are the weak and what is this business about eating? The communal act of eating together in Rome and in many contexts where you have a mix of Jewish and Gentile believers was a source of a lot of conflict because as is the case even today, different races and nations have different cuisines, different foods they eat. But with the Jewish people in particular, um, and really this is with, with ancient cultures in general, uh, what you ate was bound up with your religious sort of perspective on life. And for the Jews in particular, there were many numerous ceremonial laws about what they could eat and what they could not eat that, that really set them apart from the rest of the nations and, and actually taught them in their very diet about the holiness of God and their need to be set apart and to be pure. And so... So there's this deep sense of, of 
of, of the world of things to eat, of things that are clean and things that are unclean. And that those unclean things make you spiritually impure, right? So now imagine that Jesus, that the gospel goes to all the nations. And so you have Jews and you have Gentiles, you have people from pagan backgrounds that are, and they're all sitting together at one table. And no longer is the table a kosher table. <laughs> you have pork or you have meats that have been sacrificed in a temple that is now on the table here. When Jesus was ascended, he says to Peter in chapter 10, when he has a dream, he tells Peter to go to Cornelius and his household, who are Gentiles. He says, go with them and be and eat with them. And Peter says, no, Lord. And Jesus says this, this is what God has made clean, do not call common. Jesus fulfills a ceremonial law, and through his righteousness, what he does is he throws open the door to all peoples and all nations and to all their cuisines. And so no longer is there a, a world of clean foods and unclean foods from a spiritual perspective. And so who are the weak then that Paul refers to here? Who are the weak? Most likely the weak are Jewish Christians who are struggling to simply give up food purity laws on account of how deeply formative those have been to their, their experience of God and their cultural identity, their racial identity. They only eat vegetables because they can't find any kosher meats. And again, like, you know, it's not, I mean, there's butchers in the ancient world, <laughs> just like there are now, but they were, they were almost always associated with temples. And so all the meat you would get was, was a meat, was, was an animal that had been sacrificed in some temple somewhere. And, and, and so here you have, like, you know, a Jewish person that now I'm supposed to eat, like, a meat that's been sacrificed in a pagan temple, Right? Imagine you grew up your entire life as a vegetarian. I have friends like this. And, and all of a sudden now, you can eat meat or you, you feel compelled to eat meat. Imagine how, how strange or difficult that might be to go from never having eaten meat to eating meat. To go from always having abided by kosher laws and purity laws. And now all of a sudden, you're eating meat out of temples and with Gentiles you can imagine how that would be really difficult to make that, that mental shift in your own mind. So why does Paul call those who, who don't want to eat meat the weak? And it's to be clear here, it's not because they're necessarily you know, fragile or quiet or, or meek and gentle as we might think of it. In fact, you can imagine that some of them are quite loud and quite vocal and appearances seem quite strong in their opinions. But weak here, and, and Paul's really clear, weak here is not a lack of, of, of true faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul said, describes these, the, these people as weak, he's not saying, you know, that, that they don't have a true faith in Jesus. But what he is saying this is that they have not understood the full implications of the gospel in their life quite yet. They haven't been able to work it out full, their, their sense of Christian freedom from the ceremonial law quite yet. That's what Paul means by weak. And, but he goes on, he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Paul commands mutual acceptance between both parties. 
based upon the fact that God has accepted all, right? And the language is not simply, you know, tolerate these people, but actually to receive and to welcome, bring them into your heart, in a sense, into your life. And in both cases, what we have here, when Paul talks about judging, is not just the strong judging the weak, but the weak judging the strong. And I think it's so important here to just, and this is where it's helpful for our own context, because none of us are neutral. I'm not neutral. I certainly have political persuasions and things I read that have shaped my, uh, my perspective on things just as much as you do. We bring our culture. We bring our experience. We bring our, our racial experiences, our gender, all these things. We are always bringing them to bear on the way we interpret and process the world. And, and, and Paul is saying, you know, you need to... You need to put all that in context. So you can imagine the strong back in, co- in this period being really frustrated and impatient with the weak. Come on, right? Don't you realize? It's all clean, right? Why do all the church potlucks have to be vegetarian, right? But you can imagine the weak talking to the strong. It's like, you, you meat eaters are clearly not serious about the Christian life. How could you go to a temple and, and take this meat that's been sacrificed to Athena and then put it on the, ta- the table at the church, right? With all its associations with pagan worship. I mean, the weak don't see themselves as weak, but rather as a righteous remnant, as the truly holy within the body. So you're all probably wondering, okay, How does this distinction between weak and strong apply to our own context, specifically to the situation with COVID-19? And here I want to, I want to exercise great caution for all of us in assigning people to the category of either weak or strong. There is a temptation, I think, to see the strong through the lens of this text in our context, as those who want to resume meeting right away. For those who aren't afraid to, uh, to be in public and, and, and not wear a face mask, even though they know that they might get sick, they're willing to risk that in order to be with the people of God. And that the weak are those who, who are afraid to get sick and insist on face mask and don't want to go out, right? And again, I want to just exercise a lot of caution here in how we apply this because the situation that Paul addresses is not the same thing as what we're dealing with here. There's no nice, tidy application here. The weak that Paul addresses are those who have not been able to accept that God has declared all foods clean. They are clean, but they've not been able to accept that they're all clean. No longer can kosher food contaminate you spiritually and make you impure. Now, it's not fair, friends, it's not fair to view those that have a more cautious approach to reopening or wearing face masks as the weak. Because COVID-19 is a biological reality that is still infecting people. And it's not a matter of simply us declaring it no longer impure or contagious, right? There has been a lot of people, I mean, 
You know, I, I know the politics around the numbers of deaths is, is quite significant. On the higher end, um, as 100,000 deaths, I looked at the CDC website this morning and it said 73,000 people have died. Um, just to put that in perspective, that's 73,000 people who have died in the past three, roughly three months. Over a decade of Vietnam War, there were 68,000 deaths. Many people's decision to be more precautious about gathering is not because they're afraid of getting infected and dying, but because they're afraid of getting infected and then annoyingly passing it along to somebody in their family or a neighbor who is vulnerable and that person dies. And so it's not fair to necessarily cast those who are more cautious as the weak. And I think that what this, this whole virus has laid bare for us is that one of the hardest things about this virus is that it has shown us how interconnected we all are to one another. How much our behavior and our decisions impact those around us. And this cuts deeply against the grain of our American spirit of live free or die. So let me, what my goal this morning was actually to to reframe this conversation for you a little bit. And I just want to say, you know, some of you who, I, I think it's better than to casting our different tendencies on this issue, whether to, to stay in lockdown and to be cautious or, or whether to just boldly reopen. Rather than seeing this as a weak and a strong, I, I'd like to pr propose to you that there's two parties or two, two tendencies that are exhibited in our body and in our culture. And they're not a weak versus strong. I'll call them the bold versus the cautious. And actually, I think we need both perspectives. And I just want to apologize right now if you, like, so the, the bold party, let me just describe the bold party. Those who are bold want to resume life, want to resume church, want to go back to things and, and out of lockdown. And I think this is really important. And, I, and before you think that I, I, you know, I'm against this perspective, I would actually put myself in this category. There is more to life than bare existence, bare biological survival. There are losses, real losses, that we sustain as a people by continual lockdown and isolation. I mean, we... Human flourishing is more than simply staying alive. There are economic implications, there are spiritual implications, there are communal implications. And, you know, I fear, or one of the things I, I, I fear is just we are institutionalizing loneliness. And, and I think the, 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 the experience of lockdown is disproportionate in terms of the weight it bears on, on some people as opposed to others. Many of us are at home and we're married and we have kids, and things are, we could, and we have stable jobs and income, and we could keep going for a long time. Some people are at home and they're alone. <laughs> and their economic future is very different than mine. And, and, and again, I think our, our experiences are different here, right? And how we think about this. I think it's important for us to remember that there is more to life than simply mere survival. 
biologically. But the other party is the cautious party, which is, wants to be more slow and careful about reopening, not necessarily because they personally are afraid of getting sick and dying, but because out of love and concern for the vulnerable, that the people who have been most impacted by this are not young and white, but they're older, or African-American, or poorer in health. Friends, these both, both of these perspectives, the bold and the cautious, represent real moral concerns that we need to hold together. It's not a strong versus a weak situation. But here's, here's, here's the twist I would like to say, that in the extreme, when it's the extreme in the, in the bold position, or it's the extreme in the cautious position, we're all susceptible to being what Paul calls weak. Because we're operating out of fear rather than faith. And let me, let me just give you an example of that. For the cautious, for the cautious, it's important to embrace the fact that there is no such thing as risk-free opening. There just isn't. And if we think that we can eliminate any possibility of infection or risk by regathering or opening the economy or getting together in backyards, that's just not realistic. No amount of precautions will eliminate the possibility of getting sick. And yet, continued lockdown has continual toll on people, not just physically, but mentally, psychologically, communally. We're, friends, it's, this is a cruel, cruel virus. Social distancing is not natural. <laughs> it's not natural to be alone. It's not natural to keep a distance, right? I mean, it, they're, 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 it's cruel. And so we should feel that pressure that there are losses by continual lockdown and we'll never be able to eliminate risk. And we shouldn't just make our decisions based upon um, simply our physical health and the fear of getting sick. We are mortal creatures and we must accept that and we must learn to trust God with that. So, so there is times I think when the cautious, it's possible to be overcome with the fear of getting sick. But I would say that fear also drives the bold as well in their worst moments. Weakness of faith is manifest when there's this sense in which if we don't open now, the church is not going to survive this. If we don't open now, the economy is not going to survive this. If we don't open now, the community is going to be broken forever. If we don't open now, see, again, these are real fears. They're not imaginary. Just like getting infected with coronavirus is not an imaginary fear. It is real. And yet, again, as the body of Christ, we need to be motivated by faith, not fear. And here's the thing, I've talked with so many people, and I've, and, and I've from, we've all had our moments of weakness, where we're responding in fear, and sometimes that fear manifests itself in anger and impatience. But again, the Lord calls us to faith, not fear. As a society, we are confronted with a lot of really impossible choices right now. There are fears and dangers on every side, and it's easy to be overcome with fear. But Paul wants to reorient us away from these fears to the fear of the Lord, to a sense that the Lord is our master. Friends, 
You don't live or die to public health. You don't live or die to the expression of your freedom politically or socially. You don't live or die to the economy. You don't live or die to the government or to the CDC. You don't live or die to the community or to a lifestyle. What Paul tells us in verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Friends, this is an opportunity for all of us, no matter what our bent, our orientation politically, to recover a radically God-centered way of living and thinking. There is so much right now that we simply do not know, that we cannot predict, that we cannot control. And this is frustrating and it's scary, but ultimately we do not live to these things. They are not our Lord, they are not our master. They will not and cannot die for us. None of these things can save us, but the Lord Jesus Christ did die for us that we might live for him. In my moments of frustration and sadness, which have been many during this season, I found myself repeating to myself as a kind of a mantra, repeating the words of the righteous man Job at the very beginning when he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. No matter what happens, friends, No matter what happens, whether you get sick, or you lose your job, <laughs> he remains the Lord, and it is to him you live, and it is to him you die. I think we just need to recover, friends, that, that, that God-centeredness to, to reorient our perspectives. And for Paul, this is so important for us to have this at the center as a community. So how do we work through our differences, though? How do we bear with one another as a community and stay together? The second image of God that Paul holds out to us is that of God as our savior. The refrain throughout this passage um, is welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Throughout this passage, Paul has been reminding us not only of the example of Christ, but of how he treated us, how he has been towards us. And we need to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. He was patient with us and we need to be patient with one another. He was gentle with us and we need to be patient and gentle with one another. Look at what he says in verse 
verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. It's important to remember that in this crisis, as I've already said, all of us are susceptible to moments of fear and weakness, which means that all of us need to bear with one another in our weaknesses. Paul calls us to be open-hearted towards one another. But how do we do this? How do we bear with one another very practically in our weaknesses and move forward? There's three things, I just practical things I want us to think about of how we work through differences and bear with one another and stay together as a community. The first one is this, we just, we need to make room for our differences. We need to make room for different processes. In the dispute over food, Paul takes the perspective of the strong. And, and he even says, the strong are correct theologically, the weak are wrong. Nevertheless, you need to create space for the weak, right? You don't just exclude them and say, get on board. If you're not strong enough, then you get left behind. And, and what I'm saying to you is this is not even, we're all, and in, in, in all of us in one way or another are the strong and the weak together. So even more so, we need to make room for our perspectives, for processing the differences, realizing that people are gonna have different rates of being able to, to return and to process the conversation. And again, and just can I say as a side, I just feel like, you know, I've tried, I, my goal in this sermon is to try to draw us all together, to try to provide a framework for us. And, and like, I know I fail, I know I fail at that. <laughs> And I apologize. I apologize if at, even in the sermon or at different points in conversations with you over the past three months, you felt like I've been dismissive of your concern or your perspective. Um, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's hard. And again, it's like weakness, right? It's, it's very hard for us to process these things. But, but we need to be willing to, to work with one another and create space. So that's the first thing. Just making room for differences. The second one is just seeking, seeking the flourishing of others. Um, let me put it this way. We as Christians need to, to rally around a common vision of human flourishing. We need to rally around a common vision of human flourishing. Paul tells us as a guiding question, <clears throat> as a guiding question, we need to ask what does it mean to seek the flourishing of one another as a body during this season? And Paul tells us how we should think about it. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In other words, let each of us seek the flourishing of one another. Let each of us seek the flourishing of one another. Not just one another, but of our neighbors in the city of Milwaukee. What does that mean? And here's where I, we need to have more conversation about what does flourishing consist of. It does consist of public health, but it is not public health alone. Flourishing also includes communal health, economic health, spiritual health, things that actually cannot be fully achieved 
without in-person embodied meaning. And so again, this is the difficulty we're in, is feeling like we have to choose one thing over another. But as Christians, we need a holistic vision that accounts for the fact that there are many essential services that are needed to make for true flourishing. And we must be willing to order and to limit our own personal freedom and our own personal safety in order to pursue a full Christian vision for flourishing. So, so we need to make room for our differences. We need to, to have a common vision of what flourishing is that includes public health, but includes all different aspects of what it means to be human in the image of God. But the, the second, the, the last piece is this, is that we need to allow our freedom to be ordered towards flourishing. This is a big theme for Paul. Our freedom, according to Paul, is always to be ordered to the good of the other, not to our own personal good. So if there's a scenario where a sister or a brother might be harmed by our action, we are obligated to set the exercise of our freedom aside for the good of the other. And I realize how radically countercultural this is, how, how radically counter-American it is, right? The expression of our freedom and limiting it for the good of another person. But that's what Paul calls us to do. You must be willing, friends, to limit the expression of your own freedom for the sake of others, to, to use your freedom. And it's not just about making them happy or pleasing them, but it's about building them up. That's the language that Paul uses, building up. What does it mean for us right now in this season to build one another up? It's multifaceted. Of course, you know, that's going to include things like face masks, right? <laughs> I personally hate wearing a face mask. I hate it. <laughs> I feel like I'm suffocating. And I don't feel, I'm not afraid of getting sick, going out. But I always have a face mask in, in my pocket or in my car, and I put it on. Not because I feel like I need it, but I do it because I want to show love and respect to others. But I'm not just talking about face masks and social distancing when it comes to personal freedom. Because, you know, many of us who are at home, stable, you know, part of the call to flourishing might mean that we might need to take a few more risks in order to love and to seek the flourishing of one another. Are we going to order our freedom to the building up of the body and the flourishing of the city? Again, this is a complicated conversation because sometimes that means we probably should stay home. But other times it might mean, you know, we need to take a little bit of risk here and serve my neighbor. Invite somebody over to the backyard because they just need community. They need to connect. They've been alone for months. And I think it's so important what Paul says here and why this conversation needs to be open-ended is because here's the thing about freedom. It's yours, in a sense. God has given it to you, but we can't dictate to others what are acceptable risks, and we can't dictate to others and say, you need to do that. We need to do it from our hearts because the Lord has commanded it to us to do it. Again, the bottom line is that, that God wants us to use our freedom to serve one another not our own interests, not our mere safety of our family, or not our own sense of what I feel comfortable doing out in public or not. 
In the community, God gives us freedom not for our own pleasure and good, but for that of our fellow brothers and sisters. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Jesus surrendered his freedom, his safety. He endured reproach for our, our good, for our eternal flourishing. He absorbed the pain and the indignities and the disgraces in order to reconcile us with the Father. And one of the things that Paul's always doing in these situations, he's always trying to reflame our relationship to one another, our conflicts in the light of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. To be the church moving forward is going to be difficult. It's going gonna, it's gonna to require a lot from us. It will require sacrifice. It will require surrender. And yet, we don't do this by our own moral strength. We don't do this simply because this is what Jesus do, did. We do this because we are in Jesus Christ. One of the themes that I hope that you've picked up on in our worship service um, is just the importance that as the body of Christ, that mysteriously by the Holy Spirit, we are in Jesus. He holds us together. He holds us together. He will keep us from scattering apart. A text that I've gone back to again and again during the season to remind myself of is, comes from Philippians 2, and I'll close with this. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conce or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Amen. Father, we, we know that um, we are in Jesus Christ and that he holds us together, even when it feels like we are failing to do that personally or as a body or even when we feel like we're not together because we're scattered apart. We do know that in, in Christ we, we are preserved and that you cannot fail to lead us to our final destination, which is life with you together as the bride. Forgive me, Lord, for the many ways that I have failed to be gentle, failed to be patient, failed to give people the benefit of the doubt, or to fairly capture what they think or how they're processing things. Be patient with me, Lord. Um, help us all to be patient with one another and help us to know, Lord, that, that even though our experience right now is difficult, that you, you are the Lord. You are the Lord. And you hold us together in your hands and you will not lose one of us. And we take comfort in that. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.